So I'm glad I didn't have to walk uh, to church this morning, but it looks like I might have to walk home. So uh, let me be uh, concise and direct this morning uh, so we can <clears throat> worship, do what we need to do, cover what we need to cover, and then uh, go home and eat some chili or soup or, yeah, whatever. So uh, we're up to the part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Uh, let me pray, and uh, then I'll read the text. We'll jump in. Uh, pray with me. Uh, Lord, uh, as we read today about your words, about keeping our promises, about uh, telling the truth, uh, we um, are comforted and encouraged to know that you are the promise-making and the promise-keeping God. Uh, help, I uh, pray, by your Spirit today, you would apply that to us to give us courage. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Matthew 5, 33 to 37, this is God's Word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Again, you have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what is Jesus addressing here, right? So as, as we've gotten to this point in the, the Sermon on the Mount, he is taking the religious and kind of cultural tradition of the day and saying, this is the way they're telling you it's supposed to be, but really in the kingdom of God, it's supposed to be like this. Um, he goes on later on in Matthew chapter 23 to address this a little more uh, uh, directly. And so let me read this to you and I'll explain to you a bit more about what's going on. He says, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So here's what was happening. People would say, they would make a promise, and they would say, I swear to you based on the temple, or I swear to you based on this, or I swear. And so there was this kind of weird system where there was a gradation of those things, and so that there were some things that you could count on that people would actually do, and other things not. So depending on the depth or the height of the thing that you based your, your promise on, uh, was uh, how high or how important it was, that was how likely it was that you were going to keep your promise. And so the rabbis were giving people a way out of keeping their promise, a way of keeping their oaths, like, so that you could say, well, God doesn't really require you when you swear an oath by this to keep your promise, you can break it. So here's the thing. Uh, and to be very direct about it this morning is, Jesus is saying, keep your promise. 
okay? It's, it's, that, it's that straightforward. When you promise something, when you swear something's the truth, when you say this is it, then stick to it. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. And so, so you know, uh, and, and that's important uh, for us to, to, to think about this morning because the fact is uh, we have a tendency and we have a uh, proclivity to kind of shade the truth, don't we? Or even to back out of promises that we've made if things are uh, difficult for us. I never really thought a lot about people keeping their promises or anything like that until uh, I was in college. Um, I grew up on a farm in uh, North Carolina, and once my brother and I went away to college, my dad sold the farm because the workforce was cut. And so um, since we weren't around very much to, to do the work anymore, he, he sold it. He had a dream of building a house for my mom, uh, and uh, he did that, uh, but it was two counties away from where we had grown up, uh, and he also bought a plot of land that he was going to develop. So they moved there, and at first things seemed to go really well. <clears throat> but over time, uh, my mom uh, was kind of in a midlife crisis. My brother and I were, were growing up. The nest was empty, and they had moved away from everything that was familiar to her, near her family, and, and that sort of thing. And so she began to sink into a pretty deep depression. She wouldn't have said that. They didn't use words like that. <laughs> they were just like, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, it's just, they, they didn't have categories, psychological categories like we do. She was upset and sad. She didn't like where they lived. And so... Um, she began to, one, one Sunday afternoon, my brother and I came and ate lunch with them uh, after church, and then we both went our separate ways. And there she was, sitting in her big new house, away from everybody that she knew and loved, and she just looked at my dad and said, I'm not living here anymore. And my dad, you know, uh, because he loved my mom, uh, and... Uh, uh, because she was very dear to him, said, you know, okay, well, um, you sure about that? And she's like, yes. And so he began the process to uh, sell this house that they had built and that they had lived in for six months. So uh, he sticks the for sale sign in front of the house. A realtor comes by and says, okay, where do you want to live? They told him where they wanted to live. And so he began to show them houses in this part of the community where uh, my mom wanted to live. Um, and my dad said to the realtor, hey, don't you think we should sell this house first before we go looking very much for these other houses? And the guy said, don't worry about it. Your house will sell. And so the very first house they looked at was in the neighborhood where my mom wanted to live. Before she got out of the car to even go in the house to look at it, she said, we're going to take this house. We're going to buy this one. And so my dad said, well, as soon as we sell uh, the other house, the realtor heard him say that and said, don't worry. Write the contract on this house and buy it, and I'll make the payments on the other house until you sell it. So because my, 
parents were so desperate to get out of the house that they were in, my dad took him up on that offer, and uh, this was in uh, 1979, and that realtor's never made a payment on anything of my dad's. And so for 18 months, they made double mortgage payments, um, and uh, I remember my dad coming to me one summer and saying, um, we can't pay anything for your college this year. Now, this was not, and that sounds devastating and horrible and all that kind of stuff. It really wasn't that bad because back then, you could work a summer job and a part-time job on campus during the year and pay your tuition. You actually could. You, you, you could do that. You can't do that anymore. Uh, um, and so uh, I didn't think a whole lot about that, but I do remember hearing my parents talk about that. Now, the, the problem with this was made even worse by the fact that the realtor who made this promise and then broke it was a fellow church member and Christian believer. And so my dad was so convicted by the word of God about suing believers, he wouldn't sue him or do anything about that. This is a mess. It's a real mess. Um, the Bible's full of information to us about promises. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better not to make a promise if you're going to break it. It's better not to make a promise if you don't have every single intention of keeping that promise, right? And so it's, it's important for us to, to, to kind of think and, and unpack that for a little bit because the, the fact of the matter is at the very heart of the Word of God, at the very heart of, of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, at the very heart of what we believe about the nature of the gospel is promise, and that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And so our whole faith, uh, our whole um, understanding of the way God operates in the world is, is founded upon that. And so it's so important for us that that be reflected in the way in which we deal with one another and the way in which we talk to one another. Now, if you are writing a document... Uh, today, to, to kind of outline what the Christian faith is, you'd probably put things in there about the Bible. You'd probably put things in there about Jesus. You'd, you'd probably put things in there about faith and grace and growing in faith and grace and stuff like that. Our fathers of our faith tradition wrote a, a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith a long time ago, and they included all of that in the confession, but they also included a chapter on oaths and vows. Because is that important? Promises matter, right? So let me just read you a little bit about uh, what they said there. People ought to swear only by the name of God, and in that, it is to be used with holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, and to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. However, because an oath is warranted by the word of God in matters of weight and significance in the New Testament as well as the Old, in such matters a lawful oath ought to be taken when required by a lawful authority. In other words, uh, there are, Jesus isn't saying you never take an oath or you never take a promise, but you only do it uh, when you're going to tell the truth and you're going to keep 
keep the promise. Whoever takes an oath ought to duly consider the weightiness of so solemn an act. And in it to vouch for nothing except what he is fully persuaded is the truth. No one may bind himself by oath to do anything except what is good and just or what he believes to be so and what he is able and resolved to perform. Yet it is a sin to refuse to give an oath on anything that is good and just if it is required by a lawful authority. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, which is what the rabbis were violating here because they were messing with the words and the meanings of the words, right? Without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot obligate a person to sin, but in anything not sinful, if an oath is taken, it binds the person to perform it even if to his own hurt. Also, it may not be violated on the basis that it was made to heretics or those who reject the faith. There, are, there have been people historically in uh, uh, Christians who said, you can make promises to people outside of the faith and break them because they're outside of the faith. That's not allowable. Uh, a promise is a promise. An oath is an oath. The truth is the truth, Right? even if it causes us pain and discomfort to keep the thing that we promise. I was shaped uh, a lot when I was in seminary by uh, a man named Paul Koistra. In fact, he's the one who, he was a professor, his kids were in my youth group, we went to church together, and he, uh, he's the one who talked me into marrying uh, my wife. Uh, so there's much about him that, yeah, he was like, look at that woman, what are you waiting for? He, was, he could be very direct in his Midwestern way. And so um, uh, he and his wife struggled early on in their marriage with infertility, and they adopted a little boy, uh, Paul Jr. And Paul Jr. was in my youth group, and Paul Jr. was a piece of work. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and one day, and Paul Sr. really struggled with his relationship with Paul Jr. We prayed together about this. We, it was an interesting relationship. So... One day, uh, Paul Jr. is sitting at the table flicking food at one of his little sisters. And this never happens anywhere else, I know. And this is going to be so hard for you people to, you know, to, to relate to this because I'm sure this, things like this never happen in your house. But Paul Sr. looked at him and said, uh, if you do that again, I'm sending you out of here to your room and you're not getting anything to eat. You're going to bed. So Paul Jr., being Paul Jr., immediately picked up a spoon, got a pee, and slung it at his sister. Paul Sr. put his hand down on the table. He could be direct and intense himself and said, that's it, boy, up and out of here. You don't come back down to this table till tomorrow. Now, Dr. Koistra's wife, Jan, was the sweetest, meekest, kindest woman, and she looked at him and said, shame on you for doing that. Don't you think you overreacted? And of course, uh, Paul Sr. being the guy that he was, he was convicted of that. And so he went upstairs to where Paul Jr. was in his room, and you know what he did? He didn't go up there and say, I made a mistake, you can come downstairs. He said, I told you, 
what would happen if you did this and you did it. I told you what I would do. I'm going to keep my promise. I probably shouldn't have said that. I said it in anger. And so I too will stay here in your room until tomorrow and not finish my dinner. Now, I don't know who got the better end of that deal. I don't, uh, um, um, but I've always thought about that. And I don't, I'm not giving that to you as a paradigm of parenting or anything like that, but it was so important to Dr. Koistra that his son understood grace, yes, but also understood that he was a man of his word. And that it, you know, that if he said something, he was going to stick to it. Even if he said something like that. Now, here's, here's the thing that's so important to us, and that's what uh, uh, Jesus is getting at, and this is what uh, 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 are the writers of our confession are getting at, is that there are two big reasons why telling the truth uh, and telling the truth even to your own hurt is so important. The first thing is that in a culture, in a society, in a church, where we don't keep our promises and we don't tell the truth, flourishing is impossible. Because we won't know who we can count on. We won't know who is a truth teller. And we won't be able to function. It's that, it's that simple. You know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, that's, that's, that's kind of a foundational thing that holds our relationships together. David gets at this in Psalm 15, where uh, he talks about what does it mean to walk with people and to be a person of integrity. He says, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn, live in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In other words, this, do you see how much of this is about talking and what we say about one another and what we say to one another? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, that's not Phariseeism or legalism there, that is recognizing that uh, there are people who are violent and uh, uh, just uh, people that are not safe that you, you do stay away from, that you you, you may need to avoid, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And who does, who does not put out his money at interest. That doesn't mean everyone who works for Capital One now needs to quit their job. That's um, taking advantage of poor people, right? Who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. In other words, that is the pathway to flourishing, is that we are people of the truth, that we are promise keepers, and, and when we say something, we mean it, and we follow through on it. And so that if, if you want a, uh, a church, if you want a culture, if you want a country, if you want a world where there's the possibility of flourishing, we have to tell the truth, and we have to maintain the truth with our promises, Right? So that's pretty pragmatic, and that's pretty straightforward. But there's an even deeper truth here that we need to come to grips with, and that's this, that when we tell the truth and when we keep our promises, we look like God. We look like Jesus. 
You see, the very foundation of why we are here this morning, the very foundation of of our faith, the very reality of of what we believe and what we count on is, is that our God has said these things to us. He has acted on the things that he has said to us. And we count on the fact that he will keep his promise. That what he has said is true because he is the truth. And because it is impossible for him to lie, it is impossible for him to break his promise. Now, we may quibble with the timing of him keeping his promise, but if God tells you he's going to do something, he will do it. And that is the very foundation, that is at the very heart of what we believe and what we declare as the people of God. We count on that. And God has been doing this from the very beginning up until now. God calls Abraham to follow after him. He calls him out of a city and takes him to a land where Abraham's never been. And God says to Abraham, listen, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you this land. And through you, I am going to bless the whole world. Abraham waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. And he is getting older and older and older, and older. And one day, God comes to him and says, Abraham, we're going to form up and and formalize this relationship. God condescends to the cultural things that were true then, and he enters into a a kind of a contractual covenant, promise-making agreement. And so what he does is, he has Abraham take these animals and cut them in two and set them on either side of a path. Because in that culture, what you did was when you made a commitment or you made a covenant with someone else, you did that and you walked through the path between those carcasses of those animals and said, if I don't keep my promise, if I don't keep my word, may it be to me as it was to these animals. And so Abraham lays them out and God appears to him as a smoking torch and fire pot. And God doesn't say, Abraham, walk through the carcasses. God does. Why does he do that? God knows that Abraham and Abraham's descendants will be promise breakers. But because of his grace and because of his covenant to Abraham, he will keep his word, he will keep his promise even to his own hurt. Because when God walks through those animals, he is saying he takes upon himself not only his responsibility to keep his promise, but he takes on Abraham's responsibility and he says, I'll allow my body to be torn. I will allow myself to be hurt so that the promise is kept. You see, that... That's, that's the very nature of God. And so, so when we, in our small ways, in our tiny ways, begin to keep our promises and keep our word, we begin to reflect the one who did that for us. But not only that, if you believe that the promise of God is true, if you believe that the Spirit of God indwells you, if you believe that Jesus died for you, if you believe these things are true, then you can have the courage and you can have the trust and you can have the fortitude to be able 
to make a promise and to keep it because God has kept all of his promises to you and he will see you through to the end. You see, our, our, our hope, our faith is built upon the promise of God. We count on that. When we lay our loved ones in the grave, we are banking on the fact that God has promised to bring them back to us, to raise them from the dead. That the promise of the gospel is that, that, the, that our God will return one day and that he will sound his voice and tell the dead in Christ to rise. That's his promise. He says he will see us through to the end. And so if those things are true, we can take a step we can take him at his word, and we can begin to have the courage to keep our word. That's what we count on. That's the very foundation of the faith. That's the very foundation. That we're, we're not playing some sort of game here. If God doesn't keep his promise, and he doesn't tell the truth, then we, we have no business being here today. This is, this is just a joke. But if God is the truth, and he maintains the truth, he tells the truth, he does the truth, and he follows through on his promises, then we have every reason to take joy in that and to tell the truth, even to our own hurt ourselves, because our God is that good. As we, as we come to the table today, that's what we recognize, is that we eat this bread and we drink this cup because God has promised to us that through the work of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We bank on that. We count on that. Uh, to hear the words of institution this morning. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God uh, for the people of God. Let's use First uh, John 1. Uh, to confess our sins uh, this morning. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 